Good morning. It just occurred to me a few minutes ago as we were talking about Memorial Day that it's about defending our country and giving your life, and my message happens to deal with a defense of a sort and giving your life. Uh, For those of you who may not know me, my name is Chris Mauser. I'm the Director of Youth Ministries and Adult Discipleship here. And uh, I'm standing in for pastors Brian and Hank, respectively, as they spend time with their families. My message today has to deal with defending the faith. This is known as apologetics, which is a reasoned or systematic defense of something, in which I'll return to in a moment. But before I get going, let's uh, seek the Lord's face together, please. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this opportunity. Help us to prepare our minds for action, to be self-controlled. Lord, uh, may whatever is spoken here, please be used to complete and accomplish your will. Whatever's from me that's unnecessary, please let it be discarded in the minds of believers here. Help us to press on through this message. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. You will notice that during this talk, uh, aside from that screen up there, there is no PowerPoint presentation, and that is because when you're talking to somebody or witnessing, there's no PowerPoint to go off of. A few years ago, an author by the name of Frank Frommer wrote a book titled How PowerPoint Makes You Stupid, and the subtitle is... The Faulty Causality, Sloppy Logic, Decontextualized Data, and Seductive Showmanship that Have Taken Over Our Thinking. In other words, he means that you can't look at a a screen and think critically at the same time. That's why he wrote the book. So, since that's the case and there's no presentation, that means you guys are just going to have to be engaged should you want to take anything out of this talk. Again, today I'll be discussing apologetics. I'm going to be talking about what it is, why to do it, what its limits are, when it's for, and I'm going to discuss some examples. Now, a speaker usually doesn't do this, but I I clocked my talk for about 35 minutes. I could probably do it in a little bit under that if I go quickly, and then my plan is to hang out around here if anybody has any questions at the end, because it is a talk more than a sermon, and so I'm going to hang around if I can be of any assistance. In short, and you have an outline that we'll get to in a moment, let me give you the quick version. Number one, apologetics is a reasoned defense of one's faith that has both positive and negative aspects. A positive aspect is to be able to erect arguments to uh, justify your position. That's what it does. However, there's also a negative aspect, and that's to be able to... uh, to disassemble false beliefs. There are two sides to apologetics. Why do it? Two primary reasons that I'll get to in a little bit. Number one, reason demands it. Number two, the Bible commands it. Limits. There's a belief that versus a belief in. In other words, we're going to find out that apologetics does not bring anybody to Christ. It may assist, but that's not what it does. It's not evangelism. And we'll get back to that in a little bit. When is apologetics necessary? Pre-evangelism, post-evangelism. Before people believe, after people believe. 
Who was it for? Everybody. Everybody needs to do this, though, not in the same degree. And we'll find that out in a bit. And what are some examples? I'll talk about the angels at the tomb, Christ's second coming later. If you look at your outline, at the top there's a number one, or Roman numeral one, and it says defined. And this is where I'll be starting, and here's where I'll be picking up the speed a little bit. Let's begin at the beginning. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be turning a lot of pages fast. So please turn to First Peter and look at verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 15, please. And I'm not there yet in this Bible, so I can't tell you what page it is. Twelve oh five. First Peter three fifteen says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as always or as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. That word reason there, give a reason, is the Greek word apologia, which is where we get our word apologetics from. This is used at least nine times in the, in the New Testament, and the scripture verses are there for you, should you desire to take a look. Apologetics is concerned with spiritual warfare. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And look what Paul says, starting in verse 3. This is on 1151. There Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God, and take thought, take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So that's what apologetics does. It deals with thoughts, thinking, arguments. It deals with considering what's true, thinking about what's false, being able to demonstrate what's false. But it has to do with spiritual warfare. If you look in Ephesians 6 the chapter about putting on the full armor of God. This is 1163 in the Pew Bible. In verse 12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's not who the battle is against. It's not just against persons. It's against ideas. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies or heavenly places. Apologetics has to do with spiritual warfare. The real battle is of the mind, not just the physical. In Jude, verses 3 and 4, says something like, says, I, I, I thought, brothers, that I, would, I had to write to urge you to contend for the faith, says 12, 16, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, 
Jesus Christ. The people who creep in are unbelievers. How do you fight against them? It doesn't say slay them physically. How do you defend the faith? How do you uphold the Christian message? It's that of ideas. It's the battle of thoughts. We're to contend earnestly for the faith. In a word, doing apologetics is thinking about what you believe and why you believe it and making those reasons intelligible to others. That's what apologetics is. Now, why do it? Well, reason demands it and the Bible commands it. Point two on your outline. Number one, reason demands it. Isaiah one eighteen. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Think about the following. Uh, your son or daughter or somebody you know comes home from school one day and says, uh, Mom, Dad, uh, Aunt, Uncle, Grandma, Grandpa, um, I don't think I believe in God anymore. What do you say? We don't say, uh, what would you say? Or if you're being a good evangelist and you're giving the five-finger gospel presentation, thank you for introducing me to this, Julie. You might have to help me out. Does anybody know this? Raise your hand. What, what is it? Number, number one, what, heaven is a free gift? Uh, number, this pointer finger is? We're all sinners. Man's a sinner. Number three, God loves the man. Right? Hates, it loves the sinner, hates the sin. Excuse me. Number four is Jesus is the infinite God-man and what he did is his death and resurrection for our sins. And number five is that we have to accept it by faith. So we explain this gospel presentation and the person says, now this gospel about Jesus Christ is in the Bible, right? And we say, yeah. And they say, well, I don't believe the book, so I don't believe the gospel about the man who's in the book. And you say something. <laughs> you got to say something. Because they're not just trying to be a nuisance. They just don't believe. The, the Bible has been called into question. Or you have a family, friend, or co-worker and comes up to you and says, what about these contradictions I found in the Bible? You know, when I, when I look at Luke and John and I look at the resurrection account, I see two angels at the tomb. But if I go to Matthew and Mark, I only see one. Same resurrection account, is there one or two? Is there only one? If there's only one, there's not two. That's a contradiction. Or what about Jesus' second coming? Turn to Matthew 24, you think it is? Verse 36, it should say in the outline. Here, Jesus is speaking. He's talking about his second coming, and he says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming days of the Son of Man. Okay. Check this out. If God is omniscient, means he knows everything, right? then he knows the time of his second coming, right? The Bible says, true or false, Jesus does not know the time of his second coming. True. Therefore, the conclusion is, 
Jesus is not God. Or you could say he is God, but then God is not omniscient. Of course, then other implications follow. Miss Diane, you might as well tear the book of Revelation out because it's God's best guess. He doesn't know. You think you're going to win at the end, but we're not sure. Problems abound. Which one do you want to give up? Jesus is God? Then you can go to the JW Watchtower uh, Church right on 41 there. Or Jehovah's Witnesses. He's just a man. Or God's, omni- or God's not omniscient. Now we're called neotheists or panentheists. If you don't know what those are, don't worry about it. Neither one's good. That's, that's a problem. So that's one issue of why we need to be doing this. Reason demands it. Uh, Socrates used to be called a, a gadfly. He would question people and ask them why they believed what they believed. And he would say, his conclusion was that the, the unexamined uh, life is not worth living. Similarly, I would posit to you that the unexamined faith is not worth believing. Because if you just say, well, I just believe, well, why not be a Muslim? They just believe. And then they strap on some bombs and go blow themselves up. What's, what are you doing that's so different besides just living? So that's one reason. Letter B there under number two. We cannot know what is not true unless we know what is true. Now think about this. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In other words, God is the biggest idea we will ever cram into the three pounds of silly putty between our ears. He's the biggest idea we'll ever have. And Norm Geisler says, an ultimate commitment to anything less than ultimate will not ultimately satisfy. So if God is the biggest idea that we have, and an ultimate commitment to the biggest idea that we have, if we have a less than ultimate idea, guess what? We are not going to be ultimately satisfied because we're not thinking about the true God. Now, we might say that this is more an apologetic for apologetics and has more to deal with knowing God than apologetics does, but the point is the same. We have to know who the true God is and be able to defend what is said. How shall we live if we cannot discover which of the many competing claims to truth is correct? Okay, point two, the Bible commands it. Turn to Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, please. This is on 984. A man questions, Jesus, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And what's the last one? With all your mind. We got to think about these things. Now, I used to work in a place, not here, I'm not masking my job right now. That something good would happen and people would say stuff like, man, the spirit was really moving. And I didn't say anything, but I used to think, hmm, where's he moving to? God's omnipresent. Where are you going to go if you're everywhere? If you're already everywhere, you can't go anywhere. Where's he moving? But it sounds good. It preaches, right? Or... I'll bring up this one. I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I'll say it anyway. 
And I'm not belittling anybody here, by the way, with this one. You know that song we sometimes sing that it goes like this, uh, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place, fill the atmosphere. You know that song? Have you ever heard that? Where is the atmosphere? Is it in time or in eternity? Where is the atmosphere? Is it temporal or is it eternal? Who thinks it's eternal? Raise your hand. Cheater. Who thinks it's temporal? Who thinks it's in time? Who doesn't know? (laughs) The atmosphere, the space-time continuum. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The universe is temporal. It's in time. And what's in time is changing. And if God is in time, if the Holy Spirit's flooding the atmosphere, he's in time. And then he's changing. And if he's temporal, he's not eternal. If he's not eternal, he's not God. We've all of a sudden given God a finite status. We now believe in Greek gods. Or we're pantheists. That means all is God. You say, well, I like that song. So what? I'm not not accusing you for singing it, because I've heard it sung in here before. I'm just pointing out the fact that when we say these things, it's not honoring to God. What if I said, Miss Diane here is a great piano player, organ player. Don't turn red on me. I'm trying to make a point. And we say, that's an honoring thing to her, right? Because what does she do? She plays. But what if I said, Miss Diane's a great pugilist, She's a boxer. Well, why would we say that? She hasn't fought for money. You haven't fought for money, have you? Okay. (laughs) That's not an honoring thing because it's not true. The same if you said something about your parents that wasn't true or somebody said something about them that's not true. That's not honoring in any way. And yet we sing songs without thinking and, you know, we kind of just, well, I like the way it feels. If feelings, if that's the criterion for truth, why not just do or say whatever makes you feel, feel good? It doesn't matter. So the Bible commands that we think. First Peter 3.15 said, We were commanded to defend the faith. First John 4 through 1, he says, Test the Spirit's to see if they are from God. Test them. We're to be discerning. Jude already said, we are to earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Titus 1.13, we're commanded to rebuke false teaching. That's one of the jobs of an elder. If you're an elder, you are expected to be able to know sound doctrine and to refute those who oppose it. That's a requirement. It's not mine. It's God's. Paul says in Philippians 1, we are partakers in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He didn't do it, and we're just supposed to say, oh, bye. We are partakers. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we need to be about the Lord's business in this area. Other examples are listed down at the bottom there. How am I doing on time? If you turn the paper over, there is a limit to apologetics on the top. 
And I have these two categories here. Because once again, apologetics doesn't lead anybody to Jesus Christ. You say, well, why are you doing it then? Well, because the problems that I gave earlier are still real problems for some people. They are real hindrances. They are intellectual objections. They're wondering, why in the world should I believe what you have to say instead of become a Mormon or a Muslim? Why? They just want to know why. But you have to believe that God exists before you can believe in God. Apologetics has to do with the former. It helps people see that God exists, even if it doesn't make them believe in Apologetics addresses the mind primarily. But the gospel, evangelism, who's the, who's the evangel, the person that you're speaking to? You're trying to address their will. You're trying to inspire in them the conviction, the Holy Spirit working through you, of course, that they're a sinner and they need a savior. That's evangelism. But that's not the same thing. Apologetics uses reasons and evidence. Evangelism, you're ultimately depending on the Holy Spirit. Now, Yes, you have to depend on God for reasons to get in people's minds. But nevertheless, evangelism, you are depending on the Spirit's conviction to do your work. Apologetics has to do with faith that. And it's logically prior to faith in. You've got to believe that God exists before you believe in him. You've got to believe that Jesus is a Savior before you can believe in him as your Savior. Finally, apologetics only points to Jesus Christ. But evangelism, the goal is to get people to believe in. Get them to join the faith. When is apologetics necessary? Pre and post evangelism. Okay. Apologetics is the handmaiden to evangelism. Sometimes you have to do it, sometimes you don't. But that's what it's there for. When somebody says, why should I believe this? Then you give your answer. If you're talking to a Jewish person who accepts the Old Testament, start there. If you're talking to a Muslim who thinks the Bible is corrupted, then you've got to back up and you've got to start there. Pre-evangelism. Apologetics establishes theism. That is, a theistic God exists. A God who created the world, who's beyond the world, is as different from the world as a painter is from a painting or a sculptor is from his sculpture that he makes. God is a theistic God, and this is a a Christian worldview or a biblical worldview, whatever you'd like to call it. Disassemble opposing views. Right now, we hear about the culture and a bunch of people that uh, graduate are young folk. They get into college and then within a couple years, they lose their faith. And you wonder why. Well, it's a postmodern culture. Well, what's that mean? That means they don't believe in truth. There is no truth. To which you respond, is that true? It's self-defeating. That's what apologetics does. It shows the self-defeating nature of other views. If they're in a science class and they learn that, you know, all, the only thing that exists is matter. Stuff you can touch or can't touch if it's particles. You say, is that belief matter too? The belief that all things are matter, is that matter? No. Well, then maybe something else other than matter exists. It's called spirit. Post-evangelism. Once people become believers, they experience an onslaught of issues that plague the mind. Has anybody doubted before? If you say no, you're not being honest. Everybody has doubts. 
The question is, do these doubts overcome you? Sometimes they do. You know the feeling of when you're doubting or you're in a situation where you wonder if what you believe is true. That's where apologetics comes in. Post-evangelism. But what about believers that just, they go off into the battlefield and they're not trained? They usually get slaughtered in this area and what happens? Well, they come home from college. I'll use young people as an example. Now I'm a skeptic. And then all of a sudden they become an unbeliever. Then they become liberal. Here they are now rooting on the other side. And eventually, they're an enemy of the cross. And they may or may not come back to the faith, depending on your view of what, per, your view of what perseverance of the saints means. Or once saved, always saved. So that's post-evangelism. But it, it can also help with tragedy. I'll use this example. Uh, Though I didn't clarify it with my wife, so I'll get that on record. Um, when we lost uh, our first child in miscarriage, it's devastating, especially if any of you have had that happen. It's not easy. And you could be upset with God, or you can be sad. Sometimes it's both. I don't know. I don't know exactly. You know that you're kind of ticked, though, and you're not feeling so hot. And you go, well... What is going on here? Now, if you're like me, and I don't know if you are, I take great comfort in apologetics in this time. Why? Because there is great evidence that an unborn child or a born child who is not yet at the age of, uh, of accountability goes to be directly with the Lord. I can take great comfort in the fact that my child is in heaven with Jesus Christ seeing his glory the glory is of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. Never has to experience pain, sorrow, suffering, loss, taxes. Not that all those are in the same category. But you, you know what I mean? I mean, think about that. Think what great comfort. Have, have you ever made a, a, a mistake when you were younger and, and something happened like that? And you think about, well, well what, what goes on now? I don't know. Well, there are answers and there are good answers to know these things. And you could take great comfort by knowing the truth in these very difficult situations. Because they are difficult. Sorry to bring up a sensitive subject, but it's true. Who's supposed to do apologetics? I'm at point five. I'll hit the next two points, then we'll wrap up here. First and foremost, all believers. You say, well, I know that. It's a biblical command, so it's obviously given to everybody. Yeah. But it's given to people in different degrees. In other words, you may have not heard about this until you are in your late 70s, 80s, 90s, I don't know. So what's not incumbent upon you, necessarily, is to uh, now go to seminary to go get a master's degree in such and such apologetics. In other words, depending on your sphere of influence, that's where you're expected to perform. You may not have the sphere of influence that a professional speaker does, for instance, like a Ravi Zacharias or a, uh, uh, a John MacArthur. With great power comes great responsibility. Same, same thing. Jesus said the same thing in different words. To, to he who is given much, much is what? Required, expected, that's right. 
So everybody is to be about this business. The question is, how? And the point that I want to stress is what I am saying about apologetics does not leave it optional as if it's a hobby. This isn't just something cool to do, like picking up a a book to, to study some topic that you like. This is a requirement. What is optional is our decision to be obedient or disobedient because we will have to give an account for it. So that's what's the optional part. But what's not optional is our command to do this. And we will be judged for giving answers. So that is the who's supposed to do it part. Finally, let's talk about some examples and I'll wrap up. What in the world does this look like? Well, it depends. If you're talking to unbelievers, there are three... I'm just going to give you three main arguments because it's getting late in this talk and so I don't want to glaze you over for the rest of the time. Three arguments. One's cosmological. Second is teleological or design. Third is the moral argument. The cosmological argument, at least this version of it, basically says this. Everything that begins has a cause. The universe began, therefore, what? All right, we're going to try this again. (laughs) Everything that begins has a cause. The universe began, therefore the universe has what? A cause. There we go. Notice what I didn't say. I did not say everything has a cause. If I said that, who else needs a cause? God. That is not the argument. That's not the argument to make. That's not the argument you want to make. That's not the argument I have. We don't say everything has a cause. When somebody says, well, who caused God? God doesn't have a cause. He is uncaused. He is eternal. He's always been. He always will be. He does not change in this respect. To ask To ask who caused God is literally a meaningless question because you're asking who caused him who has not caused. Meaningless question. What does blue taste like? What? That doesn't make any sense. Well, that's the point. So that is the cosmological argument. Teleological argument or design argument, and you folks who are big into science should like this one, is that anything that has design has a designer or intelligence. The universe and life, and especially microorganisms and bacteria, even proteins, has great design. Therefore, the universe has a designer. That's right. Everything that has design has a designer. The universe has great design. Therefore, the universe has a designer. Last one, and probably the hardest to get, is the moral argument, and that is, if there is an absolute moral law, there is an absolute lawgiver. If there's an absolute moral law, there's a moral lawgiver, I'll say. There is an absolute moral law, therefore, there's a lawgiver. You can't have laws without a lawgiver. We do have moral laws. It is immoral to murder babies all the time, all the time. I'm not trying to get into abortion debate, I'm just telling you. It is immoral 24-7 from before the universe was created till now. It's immoral to do. But if there's a moral law, then there's a moral law 
giver. So that's something, that's something like a pre-evangelism, something like you would talk to an unbeliever about and try to establish that God exists. Because what are the alternatives? The universe came into being from nothing. So can nothing cause something? Can no thing cause something? No, that doesn't make any sense. Can the universe be self-caused? Well, how do you cause yourself? Because you have to exist before you exist. That's impossible too. What's your last option? Caused by another. In this cause we call God. With regard to what I mentioned earlier, and then let me finish up here in a hurry. With the angels at the tomb, there are so many alleged Bible difficulties. Luke and John say there were two angels. Matthew and Mark say there was an angel. Now, if I met a couple at a grocery store, let's say Lynn and Ermgard for argument's sake. I know I'm picking on people during the sermon. And I came up to you afterwards and I said, I saw Lynn at the grocery store. Doesn't mean I didn't say, see Ermgard too. Matthew and Mark say there was an angel. And when there's two, there's at least one. It doesn't say only one. You have to add that word to get the contradiction. But it says there was one. With regard to Jesus' second coming, does anybody know how to respond to this before I give the answer? Has anybody heard that objection before? Jesus didn't know the time of his second coming? How many natures does Christ have? He has two. That's right. Did, did Jesus get tired? Yeah, he fell asleep on the boat. Remember that? But Psalm 121, I think, you could check me out on that, says, He who watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. So as God, he doesn't get tired. As man, he gets tired. What about hungry? Yeah, Jesus is famished. He has to eat. But the psalm says, Cattle on a thousand hills is mine. If I were hungry, not that he gets hungry, I would not tell you. God doesn't need to eat. He doesn't have a physical body like us. Christ doesn't either in the divine nature. So anytime we see something or we're asking a question of Jesus Christ, we have to ask it how many times? Two. You got to ask it two times. Did Jesus Christ know the time of his second coming? As man, no. As God, Absolutely. Absolutely. He's omniscient. Of course he knows. The Father can't know what the Son doesn't know, and the Spirit knows what both of them knows. They're all omniscient. Three persons, one essence. I'm going to read my summary, and then we'll get out of here. In summation, apologetics is not some abstract tool or topic that concerns only academics. It is much more than that. Anytime doubt arises in a believer's mind or unbelievers object to Jesus Christ being the way, the truth, and the life, a response is called for. Christians are called to always be ready to give a defense for the hope that they have and to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. They are called to tear down the strongholds of unbelief in order for the Holy Spirit to do what only God can do in convicting the world of sin righteousness in judgment. 
Though an omnipotent God is in no need for anyone to do his work for him, he has ordained that believers partner with him in being salt and light to a world filled with darkness. All believers are called to fulfill this task within their respective spheres of influence and will have to give an account of how they fulfill or fail to fulfill this command on the day of judgment. With this in mind, let us take seriously our responsibility to earnestly contend for the faith, to think about God in a way that is honoring to him, and to help those within the church renew their faith and confidence while leading the unbelievers into the sacred romance with the triune God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we celebrate a season where many have given their lives for this country. Many have given their time, their energy, Lord, Their souls were taken so that we could have freedom. They were called to no mean task, but a serious call, one that took everything for them. Lord, you call us to a serious task, namely to evangelize a lost world, a lost world that has objections, they have problems, they have issues that they can't see past unless someone is willing to take the time and show them that Jesus Christ really is the only name given under heaven to men by which we must be saved. God, give us the strength. Give us the desire. Call us to be strong, to gird up ourselves and to take on this holy calling. Lord God, please bless us as we go out of here. Bless and keep this beautiful bride of Christ. And please be with us in all that we say, do, and think. In Jesus' name, amen.